Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. This is uh, part two of our conversation with Dr. Annika Dean. We've talked about a lot of things in, in, in the first part, which was great. It was a great conversation. And But I guess get, getting back to sort of what we were probably talking about originally was how does, how does the, the climate impact on the ocean and how does the ocean impact on the climate? So can you give us a sort of a bit of a layman's sort of description of that? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so the ocean is actually a central part of the climate system. It's central in in sort of circulating heat around the globe. So most of the solar energy that comes into the lower atmosphere, it sort of hits the tropics and the ocean circulation, which is different to currents and tides, it's actually, it's called thermohaline circulation. It's these massive sort of circulation belts of, of water that um, are driven by so salt and different, heat and different temperature to differential. Yeah, different to currents. Wow. So the Gulf Stream is, is for example, a thermohaline circulation um, system. And okay. basically what, what it is doing is circulating heat from the tropics sort of up to the mid-latitudes. So Europe is a lot warmer than it, than it would be um, because of the Gulf Stream, okay. which sort of brings mm. heat um, up to those latitudes. So there's actually so many different ways in which the climate and the oceans are sort of interconnected. Um, we talked a little bit at the beginning about um, the increased ocean heat content um, and the fact that the oceans are really a very, very steady measure of of global warming and there are lots of different sort of flow-on impacts from that from the extra heat we talked a little bit about the more frequent marine heat waves um, but one of the things as well is um, arctic sea ice melt mm. so sea ice extent um, in the arctic has been declining steadily and that's sort of at all times of year it's it's, it's just been going down if you sort of look at the graphs it's it's just been going down and down and down a lot of heat is reflected from ice it's called mm. um albedo effect um so as ice sea ice extent is shrinking the ocean is actually absorbing more and more heat and that's accelerating the warming of the planet a lot of people think that the um, melting sea ice is actually contributing to sea level rise but it's actually not um because it's it's like sort of ice in your in yeah. your cup yeah it's the ice is displacing the water so that floating ice doesn't actually contribute to sea level rise but it does contribute to the acceleration of warming of the planet. And it also, there's a lot of nonlinear complex impacts on the climate system of um, that warming that's happening in the polar regions. So one of the things is that it, it could impact some of these thermohaline circulation systems um, because ice um, doesn't 
contain salt. It basically, as water freezes, it dispels the salt. The, the water up in those polar regions is more salty and it's colder and mm. it sinks. And it's actually where these thermohaline circulation systems start. So as this water sinks, um, other water sort of moves in to replace that other displaced water and it creates this sort of circulation belt. So as more and more fresh water enters the system from sea ice melt, mm. it can actually impact things like the Gulf Stream. It's actually um, changed the way. you're diluting it because it was a lot of salt in it, but now it's Basically not. more fresh water, more fresh water and, and warmer, yeah, yeah, which okay. is imp- impacting thermohaline Thermostanding for okay, temperature, so, haline standing for so salt, it's a, it's a knock circulation on systems. Yeah, it's, oh, it's yeah, a knock-on effect. Yeah. And they have actually measured that um, the Gulf Stream has actually slowed down slightly. Because um, isn't that one of the scenarios, was it the movie, is it Day After Tomorrow where the, the ocean currents stop and then they go the other way and that has a horrendous impact on the planet and all these people start freezing and countries start. I haven't watched that movie, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that, I mean, yeah, there are so many ways in which like – Things are interconnected. Well, that's the whole thing about the planet, isn't it? It's 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 one big interconnected, crazy blue dot. It's incredible, isn't it? Like yeah. A, so yeah. yeah. So so you know, thinking that we can't have a cold snap or something going, and it's not mm. influenced by climate change is completely crazy. Even um, the the really serious cold snaps that have happened in um, Europe and the US in recent years have actually been um, influenced to some extent. They think by the changing temperature differential between the polar and mid-latitude regions, so the regions around Europe and US, um, and that's basically because of melting sea ice because the temperature is getting warmer, oceans absorbing more and more of that warmth. Um, it's impacting the jet stream, which is like a band of air that, which actually helps to um, maintain that temperature differential between the mid-latitudes mm. and the polar regions. And so there's getting more and more sort of kinks in this jet stream, which is like mm. this band of fast wind, um, and that means that cold air from the Arctic can penetrate down to um, Europe and the US um, more easily and also, you know, the warmer air from the mid-latitudes can p- penetrate and accelerate that warming in the, in the polar regions. So wow. there's so many different ways. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the ocean is like central to um, the climate system. I was uh, recently, a couple of months ago, over in Canada and they had this massive cold snap that came through. Wow, I've never experienced. I mean, minus thirty degrees. I mean, I come from New Zealand where it gets cold, but apparently, in like in, in the states, like the amount of ice just forming like right in front of your eyes. I mean, it's unprecedented what's happened then. Are you saying that we're going to see? You know, if we continue down this road, we're going to have more and more extreme weather events like this. Yes, definitely. Um, so definitely more extreme weather events. More droughts, floods, bushfires. Um, basically, it just the, the the increasing heat is like increasing energy in the climate yeah. system, and it basically has to it expresses itself in all different ways. But basically, through um, increased frequency and severity of extreme weather events. Um, but even some of these cold snaps, like in these non non linear ways, are influenced by. Um, and that's that, that's the scary change. thing. I remember, like, I, I graduated uni, an environmental engineering degree, in nineteen ninety nine. Some. Maybe when I was two, uh, but the we we <laughs> always talked funny. about. <laughs> we always talked like there was always a few couple of subjects on climate change. We're like, yeah, look at yeah, look, okay, fair enough. But I guess over the last twenty years, we've actually able to, for me personally, been able to see, I guess, the consequences of climate change. Like it's not just something that's happening in thirty or forty years time. It's actually 
I've, I've seen the, the changes come about. Um, like, you know, you've mentioned the increased frequency. Like, for example, Southeast Queensland, which is where I'm from, we went through what was called the millennium drought, the, the worst drought of all time. Wivenho Dam went down to some crazy low level and we were looking at actually having to truck water in to, um, to, to the, for the population of Brisbane. And then we, uh, had a massive amount of rain and then we had our, um, January 2011 floods, which caused all sorts of drama. So we went from drought essentially to floods. And then we sort of uh, went through another sort of uh, flood period. And now we seem to be looking at another sort of drought period. It's just what we're seeing just in my little neck of the world is these sort of extreme events. And I'm not saying that floods and, and droughts didn't happen previously, but they just seem to be happening more and more frequently. Totally and then, agree. And then you see, like, for example, my, my previous job was as a sort of a, a, did a lot of flooding work. So we often talk about one in a hundred year floods or one in 20 year floods, but those sort of numbers nowadays are almost meaningless because what we're seeing is what we considered maybe a hundred year flood 10 years ago more or less happens significantly more frequently. You know, a one in 200 year flood might, might be maybe one under 20 year flood now. So what we're seeing is a far greater frequency of flooding. And we're, as engineers, we actually uh, um, account for that. So for example, if I'm doing a development project up on the coast of wherever, I, I, I take into account climate change. So if I'm doing flood modeling, I assume that the, the, the sea level is 0.7 meters above, um, current levels and uh, rainfall uh, intensity is, is 20% greater just because of climate change. And that's why I find it fascinating how are you getting told to do that yeah absolutely it's written, yeah, 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 in, yeah. It's written it's into written. state guidelines and legislation that we need to appropriately account for climate change I know, but so are you the one saying 0.7 or is that's what no, that's guidelines. what the rules say that's what i'm, I'm told yeah. to say this is this is a, a state legislative state guidelines and that's why i find it incredible where you know engineers and scientists are saying yeah it's real as we're planning for it we're, we're doing climate adaptation studies where we're, we're uh, trying to come up with all these sort of coastal adaptation studies we're uh, trying to account for the fact that you know sea levels are going to rise and droughts are going to happen more frequently floods are going to happen more frequently and then we get the occasional person from the from the sideline saying oh yeah just it's just natural it's just like no it's not you, hmm. you nuffy yeah. well it's really good that you're actually using the future project projections yeah. to um to sort of and considering them in 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 the built environment yeah. because yeah you can't rely on those annual exceedance probabilities which are based on the past anymore because yeah. they're just they're just wrong aren't we designing for like one in 200 year storm events now uh, yeah, look, a classic development would be, uh, I, I model a, a, um, I, my development has flood immunity for what we call a, a climate change scenario with a Q100, a one in a hundred year event. Yeah. Assuming climate change. Wow. So high, higher sea levels. So 0.7 meters higher sea level and, uh, and a, and a higher intensity rainfall event. And that's still a pretty significant rainfall event. And then just to be safe, I put on a uh, 300 millimeters freeboard on top of that as well. Wow. Just to, just to account for the fact that, you know what, climate change is probably going to be worse than I, I anticipate. Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, the 0.5 meters is like the best, best, best case possible scenario that we probably, you know, can't actually get to anymore. Mm. Um, so we are probably looking more like, you know, one. And how long? So, yeah, one of the things with sea level rise is that a lot of the projections kind of cut off at about 2100. Um, but the thing that we don't realise is that... What, what the year 2100? 2100, yeah. yeah. So people will say... It's only know, 80 years away. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it depends. It could be between about 0.5 to 1.1 metres by 2100, or it could be more if we sort of um, factor in the fact that um, Antarctica has actually been melting a lot faster. There's more ice mass loss mm. there than we thought. So, you know, it, it could be up to 2.5 <laughs> metres even by 2100. But the thing that people forget um, is that we've locked in 
nearly about two metres of sea level rise already from the greenhouse gas emissions that have been produced. It's just that it won't happen by 2100. It will happen over the next hundreds thousands of years. It will slowly, it's slowly being locked in. So So there's so many, so so we've got greenhouse emissions that's already locked in. So Mm. you're you're saying then we've got these, all these other things that are, that are going to happen, which are going to contribute on top of that. Yeah. Yeah. Sea level rise has quite, quite a lag kind of, um, Effect and sort of after but after 2050, we're really going to sort of and 2100 really, we're really going to see the impacts of sort of our actions now. Um, so by 2050, we're more plastic than fish, and we're going to be um, you know significant sea level rise. Yeah, well, there's, and that's the thing. That's it's not 30 just 30 years. That's man. the thing about climate change. It's not just people thought think about it's going to be hotter and sea level is going to be higher. There's so many other consequences that we just. It blows the mind, and to be honest, it is a bit depressing. You know, increased severity and frequency of 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 uh, bushfires, which we're already seeing in Australia and mm. and other places like California, for example. Now, what they consider an extreme fire is is just now happening far more frequently, and it's the same thing in in in, in Australia. Increased severity and frequency of floods, increased severity and frequency of droughts, and also just in terms of. Uh, Temperature rises, um, that has a significant impact on human health. So the, the rates of sort of heat stroke and sort of other sort of illnesses associated with higher temperatures, uh, the, the rates of sort of mortality and ailments for, in the human population skyrockets, uh, when we have hotter or, or I guess sort of heat, heat waves. waves yeah. So what we're seeing, and this is one of the things it talks about in the, in the state of the climate report is that this, the frequency of, of what we call extreme heat events are just happening way more frequently than we ever anticipated. You know, I'm, I've noticed that personally. Like it's not just a case of the occasional hot day in summer in Brisbane. It happens a lot and you're like, you can't, can't do anything except sit inside and in the air conditioning. It's been, yeah, it happens every summer now pretty much. And yeah, the last summer yeah. it was There's like heat waves. Across it's, it's severe phenomenal. heat waves across every state and territory, and yeah. you know extreme heat waves in some. And yet, areas. and then and then you go back to September last year, down in Wanaka and home, we had the biggest dump of snow. I've you know we've never ever had snow like that. I mean, both ski I think Katrina opened up, like the seasons. I mean, let's talk about that for a second. That the seasons seem to be changing, you know, and getting longer. You know, well. well not getting longer. They just seem to be changing. They ch- like- that's the thing about climate change. The climate is changing. It's not just a case about global warming. Global warming is, is uh, like higher temperatures is obviously a symptom of climate change. Uh, is that actually happening? Can we can we pinpoint that? Is that a, a data set or? Yeah. So basically, all of the seasons are getting warmer on average. Um, so that snow dump that you're talking about, that must, it's just sort of some kind of weather system that came in or some kind of okay. natural variability probably. It was good for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, because yeah, winter, spring, summer, autumn, they're all getting warmer on average. With extreme weather, it's, uh, I've sort of heard it explained in a, quite a nice way, I think, that links all the different extreme weather events. Basically, water sort of mediates the system. So as you have, as you have he- increased heat, you have increased evaporation from the oceans and also from the soils and vegeta- vegetation, et cetera. Um, the increased evaporation feeds storms, tropical cyclones. It feeds the intensity of hurricanes, typhoons, tropical cyclones and storms. And also it contributes to more intense rainfall events. So you have more moisture in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Actually, for each degree of warming, the atmosphere can hold about 7% more moisture. So it means that when you have these downpours, they're much more intense. Mm. Um, but then the, the atmosphere's kind of emptied itself of the water um, sort of in the system, and, but that cycle has kind of accelerated. But in areas where that, where, that are already dry, um, you, you still have that same evaporation. The water evaporates from the soil and then you just it just exacerbates drought. Mm. So you get drought, 
Uh, and then once there's no more water to sort of evaporate from the soil, that heat really, really accumulates. You get widespread heat, heat waves. So droughts and heat waves are linked. And then drought and heat waves are also linked to bushfires and, you know, severe yeah. bushfire mm. conditions. So it's kind of, it's actually all linked and water is kind of a mediator in the whole system. Um, it's either contributing to increased intensity of storms and in more intense rainfall or where there is no water to evaporate, it's really contributing to those linked events of droughts, bushfires and heat waves. Yeah, and we've seen catastrophic um, bushfire danger conditions, which we didn't even think um, were possible, basically on the MacArthur Bushfire Forest Fire Danger Index. Um, so in 2009, the Black Saturday bushfires, they was the first time actually where it was just completely off the scale. People couldn't understand actually what was wow, going on. that's scary, um, yeah. And, and, you know, the consequences were these devastating, um, very, very yeah. deadly bushfires. So there was actually a new category added to the Forest Fire Danger Index, catastrophic, and we've seen more and more instances of these catas- catastrophic. Yeah, you know um, you bug when they're adding, adding an extra, <laughs> you know, this yeah. is catastrophic. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really, really <laughs> catastrophic. Yeah, so in November, like in Queensland, in November last year, there was um, catastrophic fire danger recorded for the first time. I think it was recorded for a very small amount of time uh, a little bit earlier, but um, it was, you know, extended period of catastrophic bushfire danger and yeah. we saw rainforests burning in Queensland, which is really that is, not, that's it's not and, expected and it's very and, scary. And this is what I find the most scary is that we are already seeing things that were completely unpre- unprecedented and we're adding new categories to bushfire risk or incidents or whatever. And we're also trying to plan for the future. You know, we talk about, you know, these um, levels of, you know, we haven't actually looked past 2100, which isn't that far down the track. And we're, as sort of engineers and scientists and other sort of um, uh, individuals, we're actually supposed to sort of plan and sort of, I guess, uh, mitigate potential impacts. But to be honest, we don't know what they are. But what and what we do know is that the planet is a very um, interconnected uh, system. And so one, one thing we do on, on one part of the planet or one aspect of the planet certainly impacts on others. We see that time and time again. And, and climate's no different, but we do know CO2, um, and other sort of greenhouse gases are increasing in the atmosphere. Just from a pure science perspective, we do know that the, that has a strong link to the health of our oceans. We do know that increased uh, CO2 concentrations and increased con- uh, concentrations of other greenhouse gases in our atmosphere do increase global air temperatures, which obviously also increases uh, global sea temperatures. And we also know that CO2 also contributes to acidification in our our marine environment. I guess maybe we should talk about that. Like, so how does, how how does, how does, how do these increased uh, greenhouse gas emissions and, and climate change actually impacting on the health of our oceans? Yeah, so we've, we've sort of covered off on a few of the things in a kind yeah. of <laughs> way, but um, we haven't Welcome talked about. Welcome to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, we haven't talked about ocean acidification yeah. yet. So, a quarter of the um, carbon dioxide emissions that have been um, emitted since you know, the industrial revolution have been absorbed by the ocean, um, and that you know through a series of chemical reactions, it's basically seawater reacts with carbon dioxide and creates carbonic acid and a few other reactions, and it's basically acidifying the ocean. It's still alkaline, but it's more acidic um, okay. than it would be. It's, it's so that's a quarter, did you say, since the Industrial Revolution? Yeah, about a quarter of the carbon dioxide that has been okay. released has been absorbed into the ocean. And um, is that on ocean a- acidity has increased by about 26%. And well, so, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so the impact of that is that it impacts on um, all kind of corals and also um, marine organi- organisms, crustaceans, etc., that need calcium um, to form a skeleton uh, and, it, and it impacts on their ability to actually um, access calcium in the water to form their skeleton. Why? Because calcium is obviously alkaline. Yeah, More alkaline it's than it's it is. Uh, yeah. So it's 
carbonate ions, it mm. impacts their ability to access carbonate ions in, in the water. Yeah, we're getting as pretty technical. I'll answer. take your word yeah. for it, Annika. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I yeah, disagree. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, I disagree. <laughs> yeah. So this is just like another thing I suppose that's really stressing the reefs. Marine heat waves are um, the main thing that we've sort of seen so far, but this is like a slow onset chronic kind of change that's also going to be impacting reef health and, and impact the ability of reefs Is it just the reef though? Like Because, I mean, the ocean's a big, big, big place. Uh, uh, what else Yeah, no, it, it also um, there's, there's papers that I've read that have um, talked about impacting the homing ability of fish, the ability of fish. It actually impacts the nervous systems of fish. Um, well, the fish are getting nailed because we know of lots of other ways that the fish are getting – that is wow. – Yeah, so they, they actually find, find it more difficult to actually find their way to the reef when they're, when they're babies. Um, it impacts their ability to kind of, I suppose, hear what a suitable environment or a suitable habitat wow. for them because, would be. Because marine oh, – was sound pollution – Within the marine environment, as a big, you know, from ships and stuff. Yeah, so they get confused, but it, it increases that confusion. Yeah, you're but saying, but, but they're saying greenhouse gases are also yeah. contributing. Ocean to acidification is yeah. also so they're getting double whammy, basically. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas, absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Yeah. And then triple whammied with pollution as well because we know that yeah. uh, the internal compass of some fish is actually influenced by water quality as well, like like heavy metals and stuff like that. Also krill, which are sort of the, the base of the marine food chain, um, you know, maybe impacted by ocean acidification. And, yeah, there's, there's sort of lots of yeah. different ways that it could um, impact. And it's worthwhile noting our ocean actually obviously provides us a whole bunch of benefits. So the classic is every second breath we take is supplied by the, the air, the oxygen in that in that second breath is supplied by the ocean so obviously what impacts the health of our oceans impacts us yeah. mate that's mm. that's very profound <laughs> yeah <laughs> and wow. coral reefs are sort of i think there's about one billion people who are directly um dependent on coral reefs for food security and livelihoods in the mm. world so a lot of the people in island nations in the philippines in you know co- those coastal areas um are you know really dependent on coral reefs because they're like the tropical um Forests, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. like the rainforests yeah. that you see, they yeah, bastions of biodiversity and um, breeding grounds for fish. So it yeah. all gets pretty depressing. Well, I was, about to, I, was, I was about to say, <laughs> what's the cooler, you know, the um, cooler talk like at your office? You know, are you guys like, <laughs> you know, what are you doing on the weekend? 
no, I mean, I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm, <laughs> maybe I'm weird, but I, I sort of, I, I know all this stuff is yeah, happening. Yeah, so yeah. talking about it is. Oh, well, it's great. It's yeah. good and oh, fine, yeah. and and being involved in solutions is, um, you know, feels good. So. Oh no, no, don't get me wrong. Well, I, is it depressing? Really like, it, like obviously, like we hear this. I get depressed listening to you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> the feeling's visual, I promise you. But like, it is depressing when you you feel about it. it's it's a gruesome. All the data is proving that that the climate change is a th- is a key thing. It's a key pressure. We know it's happening. It's, it's humans are a key source of that climate change. We're not doing enough about it. We're probably not going to meet our targets, like the Paris Agreement that Australia signed up to. We know what what, what, what Paris Agreement. So it's gone. <laughs> Did you want to comment on that, Annika? Or? On the Paris Agreement yeah. and well, our was targets? It, yeah. was, was it even an agreement? Isn't it just... Oh, no, the Paris Agreement is still an agreement. Okay, it's still an agreement <laughs> with no teeth. It, it is having an impact. It's having a big impact, I think, on, on the world and on, um, you know, a lot of countries have set targets, Australia set targets. But it's a non-binding agreement. It's a non-binding agreement. Well, that, well, that, that's, that's like in all international law, mm. but there's... Um, you know, I, I think because climate change is one of those issues where everyone is contributing to it um, and everyone has to do something to solve it, it's one of those things where you do really need to come together and make an agreement and mm. put forward, you know, what you're going to do. Um, and Australia is still part of the Paris Agreement. We've put forward some targets which are not good enough, but um, they're targets. So our target is currently 26 to 28% emissions reductions by 2030. Yep. Um, and are we going to meet that target? Um, so but you're not. I am. The, <laughs> the current, the government's own projections, actually, despite what the government has been saying, the government's projections, which you can see on the National Greenhouse um, Gas Inventory website, shows that we aren't likely to meet those targets. But that isn't to say that we couldn't meet those targets. Mm. We we can meet those targets. Um, we just need to do a whole range of um, things. What um, are those to- things, Annika? <laughs> I want to I want to hear them, and we want to write them all down. And say Scott Morrison, oi. Mate, mate, Scott's got another five weeks, so get him quick. <laughs> so what, what What? are the solutions? What do we really need to do to actually achieve that? at least that Paris Agreement and ideally more than that? Um, yeah, so we need to set strong targets, I think, for renewable energy. We we did have a, we do have a renewable energy target, which is operational until 2020, but it would make a lot of sense to extend that and increase um, our renewable energy targets just to set, you know, the agenda for showing that, we do want investment mm. in renewables. Um, there are a range of things that um, you know need to be done to sort of upgrade and modernise our grid, um, our transmission mm-hmm. systems to facilitate renewable energy. Um, we need to set strong targets for transport. There's a whole range of things that can be done. Um, the shortened opposition has yeah, announced a transport um, policy. I think that it's for, for, for everyone at home, sorry, and for everyone at home, uh, the opposition leader, leader Bill Shorten, has announced an election promise by 2030, 20, 20, 20, half of the cars sold into Australia will be electric. Yeah, so, so half of new, new cars. car sales cool. um, and also half of the government fleet will be electric by that point, cool. he said. So I think that's a really good target. I mean, it was it was telling to um, that the NRMA on the same day announced um, that really we should be banning um, internal combustion vehicles by 2030 and that, wow. um, and you know, this. Research has shown that electric vehicles are likely to be cost competitive by around 2025 anyway. Um, what about the power to supply them? Well, without re- increasing renewable. Exactly. So if, that's one it. of the reasons actually why um, at the Climate Council also why we focus on the electricity um, mm. sector first because it mm. is really the first one that we need to decarbonise um, because it helps us decarbonise the other sectors. Um, so we really need to be continuing to decarbonise the electricity sector and 
yeah, at the same time then electrifying transport, electrifying public transport and thinking about the way that we actually plan our cities um, mm. and, you know, um, so that they're more friendly for walking, for cycling, yeah. so that we can yeah, we live and work closer to where to we um, – And that's a good point. Like there was a, there's a guy called Dan Butner who did a study, a, a book a, a while ago called The Blue Zones, but he's actually um, a consultant and I think he's recently done another book about what makes a, um, a, a towns and cities happy. A key contributing factor to the happiness of, of places to live is the ability essentially to get on your bike and go for a ride. Essentially, or go on a, or go for a walk and down the street. So it's that incidental contact that you might have actually have with people as opposed to just jumping in a car and going from A to B. You essentially, you know, go along a path and maybe bump into people. It's mm. a key factor in, in um, contributing to the happiness of our society, but mm. also obviously would have a significant greenhouse um, gas benefits. And one project uh, I, I give a plug to, Stockland Project called Aura on the Sunshine Coast, they've actually integrated bikeways throughout their entire development. It's, it's going to be eventually a, a home to about 50,000 people. But it makes sense. Yeah. Like, and they've got bikeways everywhere. And they, they said it's a key selling feature. People love it. And obviously it's healthier, makes people happier. It's smacking us in the head for how long, yeah. mate. Mm. I mean, Amsterdam, I mean, you go over yeah. there and it's just wicked. Mm. Yeah, it's been in front of us the whole time. Now we're, now we're like patting ourselves on the back that we've made one cycle path here in Sydney. Mm. It's not good enough. Mm. You know, if I live on the northern beaches, if I want to cycle here, geez, I'm, well, I'm more likely I'm going to get smashed by, by yeah. um, buses. Mm. You know, my, my safety is, is, is obviously yeah. up for grabs, basically. You go yeah. over the spit bridge on your bike. Good luck. Well, yeah, you know, I rode from Gold Coast to Adelaide and, uh, we rode through Sydney. And Sydney was the scariest day on a bike I have ever had because there's just no bikeways. I honestly thought I was going to get cleaned up. It was crazy <coughs> dangerous. Mm. Mm. Would have been a good day. So I think that the <laughs> – So yeah, getting I, back to the solutions, getting back that, to solutions. So. Yeah, I, I think for the transport sector, the real solution, like we have to think about it in a really integrated way. So we have to think about um, rail corridors that kind of link the big, mm. the big cities and then we have to think about tramways yeah. that go – that help people get from the train station to, you know, where they need to go or, you know – Bikes that people can use. Um, what about the aviation industry? What, what, what's their contribution to emissions? It's quite high, isn't it? It is quite high and it's growing. Um, actually, in the way that we report our emissions, um, global aviation isn't actually in anyone's emissions. Nobody reports. On well, because it's just because it's it's oh, not my problem. Because um, it's, it's the air. They're up there. They're yeah, international. Yeah, it's, it's the same for um, global shipping emissions. Yeah, 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 they're actually yeah, okay. um, not counted in anyone's that greenhouse is, gas inventory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's like, hey, um, that's not on my ledger. Don't worry about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's not on my. But, that, but does anyone estimate? Or well, do you know what the estimate on, on or the I can't remember, but it is it is growing and Google it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so but d- domestic av- aviation is included. I also can't remember what the contribution is to Australia's transport emissions. It's it's not the majority. It, the majority really does come from emissions. top of my head, cars. I think ground transport was about 15% of global emissions for Australia. Domestic aviation? Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, no. Ground, ground transport in Australia. Like so cars no, Transport is about 20%. Yeah. 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 Um, well, not and 15. cars make up about 85% of that. Um, yeah. So domestic aviation – 
it's not the majority of our transport emissions. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, but I just, there, there's a lot that can be done to address domestic aviation emissions as well, and that you know, high speed rail. Um, yeah, we've been talking about it forever. Um, it would be really, it would make a lot of sense. Yeah, to link well, we're getting cities. another airport to put more planes in, so high speed rail. Yeah, so I mean, Sydney to Melbourne is actually one of the most busy. Um, yeah, yeah. Domestic oh, I've done a few air routes times, um, in the world. So, but um, I, I, look, I, I know aviation is a big contributor because I follow and really love Richard Branson, and they are. And a lot of companies are trying to run their jet engines on, you know, um, biofuels and, and, and whatnot. And I know Richard's even been trying to come up with new ways where you don't fire the engines up until you're at the start of the runway, like a little electric thing will take the planes out to try and reduce it because it is significant, Brad. What is it? It's about 4%. Significant. Well, look, it's Are we not talking about global aviation? Yeah, global, global, mm. um, yeah, yeah, global CO2 emissions from aviation. Mm. So, so that's 4%. Two, they, they estimated 2% in 1999 and they think it's closer from a 2007 study, uh, closer to about 4%. That? Yeah, it could be. I mean, mm. I, I just Where's don't know from? The, the figure exactly. Wikipedia. My head. But they, mm-hmm. they use a whole bunch of sources. Well, it's still it is one of the yeah. It, I think it is one of the sources that is more difficult to mm. address, but also because um, bioethanol and things like that do have some negative side effects as well. Um, you know, they can displace agricultural land. They've it's actually created some problems um, in some places. Um, but I think there's a lot com- that can be done in efficiency, like you said, like of um, making sure that the whole system is planned a bit well mm. so that, plan- mm. so that um, planes aren't circling um, airports for hours before they land and yeah. so that the whole system is a bit more efficient. And, you know, reducing, a, um, I suppose, if you don't need to fly, if you can contribute to a conference or something via – Zoom train. or Skype yeah, 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 yeah. or yeah. Watch, or get somewhere by train. Yeah, I suppose you. Yeah. So as an individual, like that's a good good seg. Jeremy likes the word segue. Apparently, yeah. Because I do you know why? Because I spend too much time with you. <laughs> I've got to change change it. Segway, get away from it. Moving on. <laughs> what like as an individual? Uh, what can the sort of indiv- like we all want to we all want to protect our or mitigate our impact on the environment. Most of us do anyway. But what what can the individual do to sort of mitigate their own sort of contribution to the climate change problem okay well we can all contribute i think but i'll just go through the sectors i think and what people can do um so energy efficiency is actually a a huge um opportunity um that that generally most sort of any energy efficient appliances save money over their lifetime so it's one of those really cost effective solutions so buy something a bit better in quality that's energy efficient it's going to be really good for us yeah at that point when you're making decision about what you know what kinds of appliances to buy just buy the most energy efficient one even if it costs a little bit more it will probably save you money over your lifetime it will meet less emissions yeah Yeah. Um, and you know from a structural Systems point of view, increasing our building standards to make sure that we're really building thermally efficient. Green Building Council. Yeah, yep. buildings makes a lot of sense and is also very cost effective. Um, but we're focused on individuals. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Also, I mean, putting renewable energy on on your um, putting um, solar panels on your roof if you can afford it. Um, it's also cost effective over its lifetime. Um, but you know, it does um, have a bit of a upfront capital that you need. There are a bunch of loan sort of options out there that you know, no interest loans and people can look into that. People can also buy green power, um, which is basically the company that you buy power from has to source that power from renewable energy somewhere. Well, I actually didn't know that. I'm going to do that. 
we should actually all be doing that because then it's supply it's a, it's and a really demand. Easy That's an easy choice. choice. You pay a bit more and then they're going to make more money so they're going to put more renewables there. And it sends a signal to them that, you know, we customers out there want renewable. Totally. You know, just yeah. like we're talking about with Tim, it's consumer-driven. Yeah, absolutely. Cool, yeah. carry on. This so that's sort of in the energy sector. Um, in transport, you know, choosing to take public transport where you can, choosing to walk or ride, um, you know, electric vehicles are slowly becoming more affordable. There's more you know, models on the market, mm. more models under under 50 grand, which is still a lot of money. Um, but one of the good things actually about um, the, the Chorten's um, policy to increase electric vehicles in government fleets is actually that it will start to create a secondhand Sorry. electric vehicle market yeah. um, in Australia. So that will also drive down prices mm. a lot. And, yeah, if you can, you know, just... Yeah. Don't say it. Don't just say it. I guess it. Use, use less energy. Like well, why why not why not turn the light like the old fashioned turn the light off if you leave a room. Don't leave yeah, your, exactly. your TV playing twenty four seven. That's energy efficiency category. Yeah. That's yeah. part of yeah, yeah. definitely. That yeah. makes so a no, lot of don't sense. actually have to spend money. In fact you don't have to do really anything at all. Just switch the light off and yeah. Simple as that. Yeah, that's right. So I suppose industry emissions, how can we impact industry emissions? I suppose we can buy less, um, you know, we can become aware of products that have less embodied energy, become aware of, um, you know, buying more quality products, perhaps using them for longer um, because, yeah, consumption, overconsumption is a huge contributor to emissions. Um, And with our diets. <laughs> um, really? You know, we, 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 anyway, our time here is uh, coming to an end. Um, <laughs> like, look, I'm keen to hear your perspective on this. Like, well, what, what can well, we do we, in terms of We have already talked about We've already talked whole, about this brand. There's a whole lot of choices there's a choice. to, um, to reduce your meat consumption if you can. People don't have to feel isolated in kind of their own individual choices. Like people can um, contribute to organisations that they whose work they support. Sure. Um, people can obviously vote for educate themselves about the climate policies of different parties mm. and, and use their vote. They can write opinion pieces to the, to the um, local papers about their thoughts about climate change. They can have conversations with you know at the dinner table with their friends, yeah. with their families. Um, shouldn't underestimate the power of um, just, yeah, conversations. Yeah. And that's in, something I think I actually think the Climate Council of Australia does really well. You guys put out fantastic and informative uh, opinion pieces and, and articles and, and, and news items. But uh, for the, the people who actually, uh, our, our listeners out there actually might not be familiar with Climate Council of Australia, where, where could they actually find out more information about you guys and, and how could they sort of learn more about the climate change problem and impacts and potential solutions? And I guess how, but potentially how even try and support you guys. Yeah, so I mean, if you just Google Climate Council, we should we should come up. Um, and yeah, we have a whole lot of resources on the website, um, reports um, that you can access for free, fact sheets, myth busting guides, videos, um, and we have a guide actually on our website as well. Um, should be able to find it on you know what individuals c- can do to um, to. Yeah, it's a, I think they call it a toolkit for mitigating climate change. Exactly. Or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's great. Yeah. yeah. So um, and, that, and that talks about you know it has a. Um, template for how to write a letter to the editor and how to write a letter to your MP and all that kind of stuff as well. So yeah. um, it's amazing how much sort of grants went. Like I, I think a lot of it, like we talk about, okay, well, what sort of industries and what sort of areas can we target and what, what can government do, what can industry do? But ultimately actually a lot of these initiatives and, and sort of movements uh, start at the ground level. They start with individuals. Even one person can make a significant change. And, and often when one person makes a change, often – other people join them, and we saw seen just recently with the sort of the the, the student strikes, for example, in Australia. I think uh, every student, or a lot of students in in Australia, took the day off school to strike about climate change, which was 
that's incredible. Like obviously there's a, a groundswell of awareness and attention and a desire for, for improvements in, re- in relation to climate change. And I think that that itself will drive a lot of other in- initiatives in terms of changing industry and changing government. And I, uh, for mm. me, that actually is really positive. As much as the climate change uh, the issue can be really doom and gloom. I also see a, a groundswell of of very informed individuals who are desperate to see change happen. I think that actually is quite motivating from my perspective. Yeah, I think so too. Hugely encouraging. I'm really enjoying this, and and I'd I'd like to invite you to come back um, because <laughs> no, I, I, this first time podcast for you, but you're actually really great. Um, and when you first came on, I thought you were a little bit nervous, but. You're just full of information and nuggets, and I think if we keep digging and stop talking about veganism, <laughs> we will find out more for our people. But I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, please say you'll come back and uh, have yeah, another Yeah, I'd love to come back. <laughs> oh, cool. Ho- hopefully um, we would have had our uh, discussion about veganism. <laughs> <laughs> um, hashtag but, play about. Hashtag. But, yeah, look, honestly, uh, Annika, it's been so good talking to you and it's so good to get so much really scientifically robust yeah. information and, and a really informed uh, uh, explanation and also a debate about climate change potential, uh, like, sorry, likely impacts and potential solutions as opposed to just relying on the sort of 10-second rhetoric that we hear from, to be honest, uninformed individuals. So from, from the bottom of my heart, <laughs> thank you very much for coming along. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.